Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse histories, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia and Zahir Ali. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. This is a special and bittersweet episode of Flatbush in Maine. Zaheer and I are both moving on from BHS to new positions, and so this will be our final episode as hosts of Flatbush in Maine. Oh, this is really emotional for us. It has meant so much to be able to do this regularly and bring out the archives and oral histories and our ongoing conversations that we have online, offline, about the different ways people interpret history and the history of Brooklyn. And so this is really special for us. And this has been a really special project for us to do together. It's so funny because through this podcast, we got to know each other. Yeah. (laughs) Y'all don't know what it takes to <laughs> produce a podcast. And um, it, it was really, we, we learned a lot about the production side of this and what it required, like our little pop-up studio. But also, it really helped us refine the ways that we approach history yeah. for public engagement. One of the most lovely things about Flatbush and Maine has been that we actually have very different specialties. We study very different topics and, and time periods. But we've been able to come together about method, about ways of finding sources, interrogating sources, thinking about the power relations of the archives. And that has truly been an intellectual treat for me to hear. It truly has been. I've, I have to say I've learned so much about Brooklyn, about a time period that's not really my specialty, doing this with you. This is this is like a mutual oh, admiration, uh, admiration society. <laughs> so um, y'all, Julie is brilliant. Her work is brilliant. I've learned so much from her doing this. And she has really shared the, this energy and excitement that is quite contagious. So like I've fallen in love with the archives again, including like old archives. When you go back and listen to our old episodes, you can hear the pitch increase as we get excited about like an incorporation paper or like you know somebody's Mm -hmm. journal entry vertical file yeah exactly (laughs) and so this is really being quite a journey for me Uh, I I mean I could just say the exact same things back to you but I will say that to me what is what I've learned so much from you but what I take away is these really salient connections between the past and the present And you and our work here has reminded me how relevant the study of history is to understanding the world we live in today. And I mean, you know, it's been an interesting almost four years that Flatbush and Maine has been rolling here. Um, And I'm walking away from this uh, being more sure than I ever had of the importance of, of history and of thinking how we do history. So as you can tell, it's really hard for us to come up with a succinct summary of what Flatbush in Maine has been. And so in thinking about what our final episode together would be, we thought it would be best to revisit some of our favorite segments and what those segments have meant to us as historians.
In 2017, the Society opened BHS Dumbo, and this gave BHS an opportunity to occupy another historic location and conduct significant research on the building and the way that it had been used and what it meant to Brooklyn's early history. And I really learned a lot about the waterfront and Brooklyn's early history doing this episode with you. And what was really exciting was that we really got to go to the place and talk about the location and the building and the materials. And um, so this was always one of my favorite episodes. Yeah, I think this institution does place-based so well. And it, I, it was so cool to do an episode that was literally place-based. We were in the space. We were talking about the 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 walls and the the, the posts and all of that. And um, and we got to, it was almost like a, in the archives, but in a place, because we got to unlock a document. But instead of the document being a document, it was a building. And so I think this was a really special, um, ep- this was a really special segment for both of us. So with that, here is the first segment from episode 15. And of course, we encourage you to go back and check out the entire episode. We're coming to you from 55 Water Street Empire Stores, where Brooklyn Historical Society has just opened a second location called BHS Dumbo. And I'm very excited to be here with my co-host, Julie Golia, who has been doing tons of research on this bill. In fact, I think ever since I've known you, no. you've been researching I know. this building. I don't and remember so. what it was like <laughs> before. But it's so cool because um, it's this exciting time for our institution and and certainly I think for people who are interested in these the history of, of this uh, waterfront. For people who may not be familiar with this area, um, where where exactly are we? So we're here in a neighborhood called Dumbo, named not after the elephant, um, <laughs> but actually after the physical location. Dumbo stands for down under the Manhattan Bridge overpass. And here we are between two bridges, the Brooklyn Bridge and the Manhattan Bridge, looking at a really spectacular stretch of the waterfront through the arched windows of this warehouse. And down under the bridge makes us sound like trolls. I know. But um, I know. we're not. And, and if, you're, if you're not familiar with this part of Brooklyn, you should definitely come visit. And if you are familiar, you should come visit again because it is so beautiful. Yeah, and it's a real contrast, I would say, to where our headquarters is. So um, Brooklyn Historical Society's headquarters is in Brooklyn Heights, which was really, um, as we've talked about in the past, really one of the first commuter suburbs in American history. It's a largely residential neighborhood, beautifully preserved brownstones. And down here feels really different, doesn't it? Yes, yes. This is an industrial neighborhood. And so we're looking at warehouses like the one that we're standing in. Factories were in this neighborhood. And then all the sort of subsidiary businesses like coal um, factories um, supporting the high industry that took place here in Dumbo. And of course, today, that industry has been transformed into sort of a post-industrial neighborhood landscape that we see now. Yeah, and you know, walking around, you you can kind kind of get the sense that there are these echoes of a past that uh, is no longer here, right? Um, Tell us, you know, what kind of stories does a building like this tell about itself? Well, the beautiful thing about both of our buildings now, um, our headquarters and now our second location, is that 
their primary sources that are reflective of the period in which they they were built, in which they are functioning. And so in a lot of ways, we can look around us right now and we can look at this warehouse um, as a piece of evidence to, to analyze. And so the first thing I think for us to think about is the bigger structure, right? So we're looking at a building that is actually made up of seven sort of warehouses that are all attached to each other. We're in one of the four-story ones. The four-story section was built in 1869, and then there was sort of an addition put on, a five-story addition in 1885. And it's marked by a couple things. First of all, these enormous arch windows that we see on the outside of the building that allowed both air to come through and for goods to be sort of hauled in through the front of it to be stored in the sort of the cavernous depths inside. Um, When we look outside here, we can also see the beautiful schist walls um, that mark the sort of the boundaries of each of these warehouses. Now, for for people who aren't familiar, um, because I certainly am not, um, what is schist? Sure. Schist is basically a kind of a rock. Um, It's a metamorphic rock. And it um, a lot of actually northern Manhattan and the Bronx is made out of schist. It's built on this sort of rocky schist land. Down here in Brooklyn, especially as you move further south, um, we're sort of on the edge of a glacier plain, and so we have more of a sandy and rocky um, sort of land down here. As you move north, um, you um, come onto a terrain that is actually really bumpy and rocky. And so in the 19th century, when city planners basically planned to lay out the grid that it defines Manhattan, Manhattan and to even out its land, enormous amounts of schist were pulled out of Manhattan and in a lot of cases used in different kind of municipal municipal um, construction projects around the city. Um, we don't know for sure where the schist of the walls of Empire Stores actually came from, but it's very likely that it was a local rock that was pulled from some other project that was taking place. Uh, it's kind of amazing to step back and think about the the physical transformation that marked the city of New York and the city of Brooklyn in the 19th century, movement of good of good materials from one place and to, to fuel other Yeah, it's almost kind of like a, a recycling. Of, it's green. Of, yeah, it's your lead yeah bi- that's, that's pretty your, cool. It's your lead um, building of the 19th century. It is. But, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Glacier, and, and I, of course, at least know a little bit about um, what that means in terms of where we're actually standing. And if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, a few hundred years ago, this would have been water. Yeah, so we would have been standing basically (laughs) before 1796, where we're standing right now in BHS Dumbo, we would have been standing in open water. And this is not unusual to hear. So about 70,000 acres of greater New York City are man-made land, are essentially landfill. And basically the land that we're standing on right now was laid out in a series of three landfill episodes. The first one happened around 1796, um, creating Water Street. we get why it was named All right. that now, right? It's very literal was, name. Straight up water. The original water line, or what you see in maps sometimes called the ancient water line, actually was sort of a softer line um, that stood between present day Water Street and Front Street. And then the last landfill episode actually allowed for Plymouth Street in front of the building to get built um, to lay out the waterfront largely as we know it today. So why did they do this? Because the commercial waterfront was growing. They didn't want 
rocky sh- or sandy shores. They didn't want the marshlands that would have defined the natural waterfront. They needed to build piers, docks, and bulkheads. So again, this is just part of a larger, just remarkable transformation of the natural environment of New York that took place in the late 18th and early 19th century and up into the 20th. Now, why would it be advantageous to build on such, you know, kind of somewhat unstable, initially unstable territory. Yeah, well, actually, what's interesting is how stable it is. So let's, let me point out something else that's actually built on landfill. The entire World Trade Center area is wow. landfill, right? Wow, yeah, So, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, I mean, true. it's really quite remarkable to think about how much of New York is built on what is essentially fake land. But there are a couple things to consider when we're thinking about the history of landfilling the waterfront. The first is, you know, one of the most lucrative commodities in New York's history is, of course, real estate, right? Um, This is true in the past. This is very true today. And there's a you know, in the in the late 19th and early 20th century, one way of thinking about this was actually about building up, right? The establishment of steel frame buildings, the ability, the ability to build skyscrapers to basically make money out of the sky. But of course, another way of thinking about this is to build out, right? To build out land along the waterfront, basically creating a commodity, a real estate commodity um, by you know, basically putting garbage into the ground and filling it up to build on top of it. And of course, the waterfront is an important place to do this because that land is incredibly important to a port city where most of its commerce takes place on the waterfront. So let's let's look around in this space that we are in. And, um, you know, one of the first things that when you come in, you see some of the um, I would say old structure mm-hmm. preserved. I mean, it's it's really cool because, you know, a lot of times when we do place-based history, it's kind of in the abstract. It's what documents yep. say about this place. It's what people say about this place. And and now we actually get to to, to listen or, or read what the place says about itself. So one of the things that um, that is here when you walk in is this 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 what looks like a tool a, a huge tool a big tool a big tool with like gears and what could have been wheels yep, and pulleys legs. yeah what yep. what is this 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 thing so this enormous 11 foot thing that we're looking at in our space (laughs) is basically a hoisting winch. Um, You're absolutely right. You can see that there's a large wheel and then a series of gears and then stretching across two A-frame legs is essentially a spool that can sort of take up or let out a rope. And the way that this thing worked is it didn't wasn't originally here in our space. It was actually up on the top floor and there was one in each of the seven warehouse buildings. Essentially, the way that it worked is that there was a train that was draped over this big wheel here. And if you pulled the chain, it sort of turned a series of gears that turned the spool that took up the rope that was basically an elevator that Mm -hmm. lifted pallets up through a trapdoor underneath to bring these very heavy goods, sometimes several tons at a time, up to the top floors. Otherwise, it would have been men carrying things up staircases. Wow. So... This kind of ingenious, simple machine was used well into the 20th century, even though it looks quite primitive. And this is the originals of here. Wow. So this is not a replica. This is not a replica. And I have to shout out props to our staff and some of the the folks that we work with. We completely disassembled this winch from where it was on the top floor of a different warehouse brought all the pieces down here to our space and reassembled it so that our visitors could have a true and visceral sense of the way a building like this worked. 
Now, the other thing that you see when you walk around this space um, are these beautiful posts. Now, it's interesting. I say beautiful because there is this kind of um, ways that these these really rudimentary structures become aesthetically valuable. Totally. No one in the no one in the 19th century when this was built would have ever been like, this is so beautiful. This is so (laughs) cool. They (laughs) threw these buildings up like they were nothing. They're very structurally secure, but they're they're workplaces. No, it's true. And, you know, it's like walking around here. I I remember the first time I walked in this space, I was like, I would. I would kill to live in a place. <laughs> and of course, like go back a hundred years and nobody wants to live they where they work, right? They're exactly. like, please, that's where we work. Nobody wants to live there. But but in the on these posts, um, which have the these are the original posts, and of course that speaks to the um integrity of the structure itself but there there are all these markings tell tell us a little bit about what these markings mean yeah one of my favorite things to do in this space is to just find some of the graffiti on these posts um and put my hand on one of the posts and close my eyes and imagine this space filled with bags of sugar and coffee and grain and hogsheads which are barrels and then of course hundreds of men and you know dozens of draft animals working to move these things in and out again just the bread and butter of american commerce has its roots in the building that we're standing right now and so these posts which we value today for their sort of beautiful lines and their sort of like evocative 19th century aesthetic were kind of just blackboards Mm. for the workers that worked in empire stores. So if we look closely, we can see lots of different kinds of writing. We see ink, which is mostly 19th century, and then chalk, which is usually early 20th century. And look at this here. This is just addition and subtraction. They're adding up the number of bags that would have been stored in this particular spot or in that particular spot. Um, by the 20th century, they're mostly storing coffee in the space. And so they, these bags, because coffee can actually stay, doesn't go bad for a really long time. It can sit in a cool warehouse for like 10 or 20 years. Wow. Um, these might have been here for many, many years while coffee traders across the river in Manhattan were basically trading their coffee back and forth as a commodity. These beans might have stayed here for years and years and years. So these tallies might just be keeping track of the number of bags that should be mm. that should be situated in this particular place. And how did they keep it cool? How did they keep the, the building? Cool? Again, the evidence of how they did this is all around us. So we talked a little bit about the schist walls before. Schist is a very thick and dense rock. Uh, designed basically to keep out the heat and humidity that we of course know marks the impending summer that we feel in New York and then these arch windows um, they're beautiful they're sort of a beautiful architectural detail that we admire today but there are windows both on the front of the building and the back of the building on the front of the building they were used to load in and out sometimes but when you open both the front and the back it allowed for very um, sort of simple air circulation through so we have to remember this is an age before refrigeration this entire building was designed to be kept like a tomb one of the other things that um i mean thinking about these markings again on these posts measurements doesn't don't seem to be the only thing that's, that's on true. here right that's I, true I and mean, it's what's really interesting i mean i gotta and... say you know i i 
I guess I'm impressed with the workers who used it for that purpose, like to to mark and count bags. Because I, well, I shouldn't put myself out there, but I would have been tagging the post yep. with like, yeah, leave your mark, your historical that. mark. Yeah, I would have like, I would have like <laughs> scribbled the name or two on there, you know. There's but, definitely so, yeah. names. There's definitely yeah. initials. A few other places in the building, I found some kind of dirty words. <laughs> so, in a way, actually, the graffiti that we see throughout the building actually reflects the change of the building over time. So um, in the 19th century, this is a general storage warehouse where the workers who worked here were carrying in bags of sugar and grain. Um, this was a place that was a center of what they called at the time the Calcutta trade. And so we had sort of jute and linseed oil coming in from um, uh, from India. There were animal skins coming from the Argentinian pampas. It was just a, a panoply of goods from all around the world. By the 20th century, the building shifts to being most mostly a coffee storage space. The building, it's important to know, never functioned as a factory. No roasting took place here. It simply stored things. And by the 20th century, it was owned by Arbuckle Coffee. And so it was storing basically green, which are unroasted coffee beans, before they were basically moved over a few blocks to be roasted in Arbuckle's warehouses that were sort of closer to John Street, a little bit further east of here. But Arbuckle sells the building in 1945. And it's basically at that point that the building is empty until now. Mm. So the building was empty for about empty and unused for about 70 years, which is quite remarkable to think about Um, and very actually pretty rare in in New York. And during that time, the building didn't sit untouched, of course, right? Um, People came inside. There were squatters. um, And then by the 1960s and 70s, um, the building actually gets part a landmark designation by the 1970s and by that time Dumbo itself is changing again and it's becoming a sort of a haven for artists so I think one of the fascinating things about the building is that it be- then becomes a different kind of canvas mm-hmm. for graffiti mm-hmm. artists mm-hmm. who did unbelievably beautiful work on the shutters um, in the building some of which um, we're actually going to be featuring in the exhibition that we're opening here in the end of the year and if visitors came today um, they would see how a new generation of artists were inspired by the waterfront and, and this neighborhood uh, in an exhibition that we have ongoing until September entitled Shifting Perspectives. So we invite everyone to come not only to see this exhibition, uh, see the, the amazing photographs hanging up here, but also look at the winch Feel the post. See if you can channel, like Julie does, back to a, a century ago, the workers who measured their coffee beans and bags of, of, of storage material um, and just kind of absorb this amazing history. In the summer of 1863, New York City was rocked by the deadly draft riots, the largest domestic insurrection in the United States outside of the Civil War itself. We wanted to think about what the draft riots looked like from Brooklyn. And to do that, we went into the archives, of course, and looked at a four-page handwritten manuscript by a woman named Gertrude Lefferts Vanderbilt, who was an early historian in Brooklyn's history. She was a historian. She was one of the earliest women's historians looking at history of Brooklyn in New York City. I think in her time, she would have been regarded as a liberal and when it came to issues of race in terms of her concern over the welfare of black people. Um, But I 
went to town on this document. That's awesome. <laughs> this was so much fun, mm-hmm. really reading this document because there was so much paternalism that was infused in the tone in the way that she spoke and wrote about black people and it was just a kind of like when you think about implicit bias and the ways that people aren't conscious about the ways that bias is reflected and I had so much fun with this. I think our listeners are going to as well. And so with that, we want you to enjoy this segment from episode 28. We are examining a document called The New York Draft Rights of 1863 by GLV. It was written in the 1890s. And Julie, tell us who GLV is. GLV is one of my favorite Brooklynites. She's a fascinating woman named Gertrude Lefferts Vanderbilt. And I first kind of became obsessed with her when I was doing um, an online website that we have um, here at BHS about the Lefferts family papers. So I was very lucky. I got to do a deep dive into this one collection. And there are lots of stories that you could tell through that collection. But the one that was really most fascinating to me was the fact that Gertrude Lefferts Vanderbilt was really a social historian in the 19th century and even a women's historian in the 19th century um, before we he- had any notions right. of what those things are. Right. So she wrote a book called The Social History of Flatbush, which she described as sort of a history of the home and hearth. And it talked a lot about, you know, cooking practices and housing practices, but of course, labor practices and lots of other things. And she was actually really also self-promoting in a very savvy way and wrote lots of newspaper articles and herself kept lots of sort of personal and unpublished essays. And so what we're looking at today, this four-page chronicle of the New York draft riots, she probably wrote, in the, as you said, in the 1890s. She was in her 70s, so it was towards the end of her life. And it's handwritten and it's not apparent that it was ever published in anything. Mm-hmm. So this is her remembrance of this. She's yeah. remembering. And so she was born in 1824. And so she was 39 years old when the draft riots took place, sort of at the height of her life. And by that time, she was also a really well-known philanthropist here in Brooklyn. She's like what you might see as like kind of like a liberal today. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. So she founded an organization called the Society for the Amelioration of the Colored Population of Flatbush. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Flatbush, by the way, was a separate city at this time. And so she was kind of the grand dame Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of Flatbush. Bush at the time. And and her family, she comes from a well well-heeled family, oh, well yeah. established. I mean, for I guess casual historians of Brooklyn or even non-historians of Brooklyn, if you live in Brooklyn, you can hardly uh, can't throw a stone that hit before you, yeah, exactly. Lefferts <laughs> is like one of the main. Yeah. And so tell us a little bit about her family background. Yeah. So her ancestor, the original Lefferts, Lefferts Pieters, came over in 1661. And by the time we get to the 19th century, when, which is the height of Gertrude Lefferts Vanderbilt's life, you know, there are hundreds of Leffertses, not just in Flatbush, but in other places in Brooklyn. They own massive amounts of land here in Brooklyn, in Queens, there's Lefferts out in New Jersey. Really, you can see a Lefferts diaspora Mm, (laughs) across mm -hmm, the country mm -hmm. sort of spilling out from the 1660 arrival. They're one of the largest, wealthiest families in Brooklyn. And it's worth pointing out that for her, despite her advocacy of what she calls the colored population, they were also among the biggest slave-owning families in the 17th and 18th centuries, really into the early 19th century. So this is these are old Brooklynites. These are um, old Brooklynites, although she's Dutch a, extraction of Dutch origin. But she, I would say, is a 
She's like a, she's like a, what's the word? She's like a transitional generation. Mm, mm -hmm. She really ushers in the modern age of the Leffertses. She is, she publishes the, you know, her family at this point becomes involved in a lot of development in Brooklyn. By the end of the 19th century, they begin selling off their land to real estate companies who are then putting up the houses that we now associate with Flatbush. So this is a real turning point in both the history of of Brooklyn and the history of that family. Okay, so let us dive into what uh, GLV Mm -hmm. remembered of the New York draft rights of 1863. Yeah, what did you think about this document? I love it, and I love it. I thought it would be pieces that I would want to highlight, but there is just so much going on here that reflects... Well, let me just say this. Um, There were parts that I read that I had like a very visceral reaction to like I can't believe she's saying this and then I had to step into the historical moment in which she is writing and then I was like okay I understand why someone would think this is good to say that this is useful to say this is helpful to say about black people and it doesn't make it any more correct or right but it does put it in context and I think that that is something that we always want to kind of stress is we're not excusing when we historicize. In fact, we're illuminating that some of the things that strike us today as deeply problematic are even more deeply as they are problematic. <laughs> like, you know, and we'll get into it so people know what I'm talking about, but there are ideas here that are unfortunately still trafficked today. Oh, yes, right? absolutely. So I can't like beat up on GLV when there are people walking around saying very similar kinds of things with with just as good intentions. Yes, I, to- I completely agree with you. This is, I mean, one thing that's really impressive about this document, it's four pages. It's handwritten. Um, she has lovely handwriting, as you'll see on our show notes, but listeners. Boy, does she pack in a lot of content here. Ooh, it's a lot going oh, on my here. Goodness. It's a lot and there's going a lot on to unpack. It's yes. quite a tightly yes. packed suitcase, yes. if you will. So I guess one of the places that I could start, well, you know, she talks about how the news came to the household about this riot. And she says, you know, the loaded farm wagon stood in the barnyard ready for the morning market. And Tom, who was to drive the team in, was in the hayloft trying to get the sleep before midnight, which he would love before dawn, when he was around, maybe aroused, by a neighbor who warned him against going into town, telling him that there were there was a fearful riot in the street that hardly a Negro who had been caught by the mob, had escaped with his life. And so then she says, this story gets to them. And, you know, the morning papers corroborated the statement. The vindictive and malignant spirit of the mob wreaked its fury upon the most helpless class in the community. The burning of the asylum for the colored orphans was a despicable act. The poor and unoffending race of Negroes were selected as the most desirable victims for its vengeance. So I, you know, I just, that, first of all, she's... So much just yeah, in she's, that. I, you know, I, and, and I know that you said she wrote for very different, like this is, this is really, really good journalistic writing. Mm-hmm. Like she just dives right in, tells us what happened. We know her point of view she, immediately. Yeah, she introduces us to the story. Um, there are also so action. many. There are also so many assumptions in yes. it. So immediately, you know, she like before she told us that Tom was quote an old colored coachman. We knew he was black. 
Yes. You yes. know, I mean, it was yes. his first name. Yes. He was a servant. I mean, and it went and he and it, he was afraid. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, so you're already seeing she's displaying both this kind of deep sympathy for a group of people that she completely lumps together, yeah. the entire colored race. Right. right? right. But also they're describing a passivity there, yes. le- a leeching of agency right. Right. Um, that, I mean, no doubt Tom was scared. Right. Do you right. know what I mean? Right. But that's like a common through line through this whole thing is that um, this is a group of people who need protection from yeah. white people. And, you know, it, so it's interesting, like the you mentioned the use of the first name. And, and, and I think that we know historically that has meant to highlight a hierarchy and hierarchical relationship. And it also, and this is also part of how white supremacy functions, uh, even when it's in a liberal manifestation, is an assumption of intimacy. Like, I know you that I can call you Tom, right? Like, there's just like, I know your yep. community. I know your people. Yep. I can call you yep. all by your first name because I'm familiar. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's that trafficking of familiarity to then talk, as you say, very um, universally about what's happening to to black people during these riots. And and the first is the painting of the, I would say, perfect victim, right? Help, and there are key words here. There's like helpless, there's um, the, the, the acts are despicable, mm-hmm. the poor and unoffending race, they were victims, you know, and I, I think that this is an ongoing conversation mm-hmm. throughout American history, certainly, about what has to be done to the portrayal of black victims of racism for in order for people to sympathize with them. Yeah, and I mean, she, exactly, because her audience is also very clear in that she doesn't state it. Which is white people, right? And she's clearly trying to put forth a very specific and persuasive argument about the nature of black people, right? And and actually passing herself off as an expert in in black people in the 19th century. I mean, the sentence that always strikes me, and this is, I'm sure, one of the ones that you cringed at Mm -hmm. when you mentioned this earlier, is that she goes on, this is just a whole paragraph Mm -hmm. in and of itself. The African race, as we see them with us, are neither cruel nor crafty. They are not a treacherous people. On the contrary, they are guileless and simple-minded, gentle and kindly in their feelings, and grateful for sympathy offered them. Now, of course, we're like, like, yeah. but th- to her, this was full compliments, yes. Yes. right? I mean, I think yes. this is really actually an important thing to understand about the time is that you could set up a million charities, but you know, she, like most white Americans, fully internalized a notion of racial superiority, even in her complimentary yeah. statements about black people. Yeah, and you know, this is she is part of a tradition. Um, so we don't want to say GLV started this, <laughs> um, but she is part of a tradition of discourse about black people that she is continuing. And again, the visceral reaction is like, this is this lady is crazy. This is racist. But then when you go into that moment, I think this is where contextualization is important. What kinds of ideas is she drawing from? What kind of ideas is she speaking into? In the late 19th century, Evelyn Brooks Higginbotham has talked about the politics of respectability, not the same in this way, but the idea of, again, trying to demonstrate what did what are the things that black people had to do to demonstrate that they were entitled to equal rights. So they had to show themselves to be just the same as and usually 
conforming to middle class ideas about respectability. And um, which is very tied up in behavior. It's right? very much tied up in behavior. And so real equality would mean that black people have the right to be angry, have the right to be to you self-protection, know, to self-protection, self-determination. And, and, and have yep. the right to be cruel, yep. but not that, that you would not judge an entire people by the acts of an yep. individual. But we, we unfortunately, our country's historical trajectory did not take us that yep. way. It took us in a way where a, you know people's individual actions were lumped into a collective, you know, some sociologists call link fate so that you were unable to experience life or be seen as an individual. Like individuality was not a privilege granted to black people. And so in that context, she is trying to portray the most sympathetic, least threatening image of black people. Now, when you contrast that with a mob a riot that's exactly. happening in Manhattan yep. that's kind of spilling over a little bit into Brooklyn. It's even more powerful this discourse is happening in this context. Well, I think in addition to the politics of r- racial respectability at the time, another incredibly important sort of factor is that in the 1890s, this is the height of sort of the nuanced racial biological classification, yes. right? Yes. And so this is times when you have encyclopedias of races coming out, that people are doing all kinds of like, you know, pseudo-biological and cranial studies to determine the physical difference between races. And I think there's a very clear comparison that that Gertrude Lefferts Vanderbilt is making here between Irish and black people, yes, right? Yes. Like they're both inferior. There's a right. presumption that they are both right. inferior right. races. But why are we, you know, okay with the Irish when they're the ones right. who are this crazy mob when look at this nice group of right. quiet right. and submissive people right. that we could actually, you know, be supporting right. in charities like mine or other. Yeah, there's, it's, it's, they're both savages. Uh, one is noble and docile, and the other is rioting out That's in Manhattan, right? That's right? right. That's right. Um, it's interesting that you bring up the late 19th century because she does invoke the ideas of civilizationism. But before we get there, there's just such a interesting twist that happens here because she talks about how one evening at the close of an anxious day before the mob violence had begun to abate, we determined to visit a temporary asylum. So they they had granted this or this space for people who were seeking refuge. Right, as we, we mentioned this about. in the earlier segment. Yes. It was a basically a windmill in Flatbush, the Vanderveer. Yes, mill. yes, and so so they go into this retreat, and then she says, you know, and how do we find them spending the closing hours of the day? They were holding prayer meetings. <gasps> this is so, and then she waxes about black religious for activity. Two th- for two thirds of the ep- yes. uh, of the of the essay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And she's clear. She's like, this scene was certainly in contrast to that of the surging mob in yonder city. Uh, she talks about, she says, when this people enter with heart and voice into the worship of singing, they become thoroughly aroused and excited. They are swayed hither and dither under its control. I mean, this is... It had a wild, barbaric ring of exultation through it. Yes. Uh, they were deeply stirred and they had no suf- uh, sufficient words to give vent to their feelings. Yes. They had no vocabulary by which to express their thoughts. The music to them was speech. I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, she says the music was not suggestive of restraint or civilization. So this is... 
There is no intentionality. There is no intellect. There is no. It's not Brahms. Per- no, this is this is visceral. It is emotive. It is. Um, it is pre-speech. It right? is pre-speech. Yeah. So I'm also struck by what's missing. Why? Why? What she doesn't tell here. Like if you take her word for something, um, the draft riots were a passive experience of fear and hiding out on the part of Black people. When we know from our previous segment that that is absolutely right. not the case. But you know, thinking even about today, I'm fascinated by the role of religion in like legitimizing or making sort of more palatable to white people notions of protest, yes. right? Yeah. So this is not an active protest. This is not like you're coming over here right. with a with a, with a, right. with guns. I got my gun, right. you know? Right. This is a in the face of violence, let's pray. Yeah, the um, expectation of almost like forgiveness. It's that, that theme again it, that we've seen throughout American history. It's almost martyrdom, yes. right? It's yes. I will just sit here oh, it's and Christ-like. To- totally. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And like you can see that in the in notions of what well, in notions of, again, racial violence and protests today. I couldn't help but think of like the Charleston shooting yes. and the way that that was portrayed versus, say, you know, your sports teams bending yeah. a knee, yeah. you know, yeah. um, that the idea that that is something that's so insidious, but that the religious connotations or even just the religious experience of something like the Charleston shooting um, makes the this group a wholly sort of sympathetic group. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, as I said, we said at the beginning, you know, we wanted to get into the historical moment so we could understand what she was doing and her motives. And I think she had, in her mind, the best of motives and the best of intentions. But what she does is contribute to the narrowing of the um, imagination of, in terms of the possibilities of the ways that black people can be, the ways that black people can respond to racial violence is very much narrowed in this uh, telling. Last year, we honored Walt Whitman's 200th birthday with a full episode. But one of the most special moments of that episode was the third segment when we featured an excerpt from an oral history with Suhair Hamad, a well-known Brooklyn poet and spoken word artist whose oral history was part of the Muslims in Brooklyn Oral Histories collection. I loved the challenge that we always faced when we did episodes from the 19th century or earlier, because obviously there weren't oral histories from that time. But when we, when you picked this clip out and played it for me, I just remember being like, this is it. Not just because there's like a content overlap, both, you know, Whitman and Suhair talked about, you know, taking sort of their inspiration from the streets of Brooklyn, but because of the poetry and the way she just described the world that she lived in. Um, she was talking about poetry and she was poetry. I loved it too. And to your point about like the challenge that, that we always face with picking an oral history, one of the things I think we learned was that even if an oral history, we couldn't pick an oral history from a particular historic moment, sometimes an oral history from the contemporary time would help gesture towards the kinds of questions we could ask about that historic moment. And that was a really, I think, important discovery for us to think about how we use contemporary documentations of life to help us understand the past even better. And so with that, here is segment three from episode 35 on Walt Whitman. 
In this Voices of Brooklyn, we are going to listen to an excerpt from an oral history with Suhair Hamad from the Muslims in Brooklyn Oral Histories Collection. Suhair Hamad was born in 1973 in Amman, Jordan. Her family immigrated to the United States in 1979 and settled in the Sunset Park neighborhood of Brooklyn. She started writing poetry as a teenager, often drawing from her family's history and her own experiences as a Palestinian Muslim woman in New York City. Her poetry collections include Born Palestinian, Born Black, Drops of This Story, Zatar Diva, and Breaking Poems. She, I think, first gained notoriety for many of us when she was a featured regular on HBO's Russell Simmons Presents Deaf Poetry, and she appeared in the Tony Award-winning Broadway play Russell Simmons Presents Deaf Poetry Jam on Broadway. Her work has also been featured in various anthologies, magazines, plays, and films. The streets, the few streets I walked to from my apartment to school was just like, you know, a 1980s science fiction surreal video of what you think hip hop is. Everything from the cardboard on the streets. You know, now it's like at near 45, the same conversation I've been having for 20 years, like this is how I grew up. Uh, I can I can sense uh, I can sense sentimentality in my tone, but I want to challenge that in myself because all of these tropes of hip hop or of urbanity of ultimately what is an extension of the black experience in this country for all the language we use around it. Like, where did you wind up around whom? Who did you serve and who served you? All those kinds of nuanced like realities are flattened, just like that cardboard box, right? So I think there's something to be said for Brooklyn brevity. There's something to be said for sitting back and watching what happens and being comfortable and sure on your corner, you know, uh, like that your back is taken care of. And I think the sense that somebody got your back allows the imagination to feel just a little more secure. I don't know if, it's, if security is what every imagination needs, but I think it, every imagination might need it at some point. Mm -hmm. So the streets were like what they were. And then my parents in their home, uh, very proprietorial over honor and virginity and an authenticity that the world itself refused to give them as refugees and as specifically Palestinians because what it meant to acknowledge their displacement, the cost of that uh, to authority. So you have like a holy scripture, which really, pro uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, intimidatingly is said to be perfect. <laughs> In a language I would love to love, but is still removed from me, right? And so I, I, I felt what one would call this creation, this life force, this God. If God was in language, it was given to me through hip hop and through the Quran. And 
poetry, and I get I, like the love or the service of poetry uh, is like the tool that I have to try to understand myself and my my environment. So I'm always going to look at Brooklyn, knowing that June Jordan walked these streets first, that she wrote about Walt Whitman walking these streets first, knowing that Tesla laid down like copper wires out here for Con Ed, like people that not only influenced me and like made me feel good to be a human, like they still influence everybody around us and they don't even know. Like they don't know June Jordan walked these streets. And, and uh, the fact that I know it is like a, a birthright, even though I wasn't born here, is that birthright that like once, once you've rooted yourself, the fruits are not commodifiable for some of us. But we harvest them. So I think before we get into the content itself, I wanted to kind of provide a little bit of context for this interview. I happen to be the one to conduct this oral history interview. And in setting up this interview, Sahara was insistent that it be outside in the city. She did not want an in-studio interview. She did not want an indoor interview. And I think what's interesting is there's this part where she's talking and she pauses so that a truck can go by. That was a very intentional thing for her. And I think at first I was a little apprehensive about doing an interview outside because of all of that extant noise. But then reflecting back, I I see what she was prompting and pushing me to do was to take a complete oral history where the city was a kind of narrator in this story because it's very much for her to kind of in-place Brooklyn in her story is necessary to do it not just in word, but audibly. Well, when you listen to her interview, it sounds like verse. And I think a lot of the reason behind that is because of the soundtrack, if you will, of the interview. I mean, I think listening to this, I wonder if anybody would question whether Zuhair is like clearly part of the lineage that, you know, maybe doesn't begin with Walt Whitman, but of which he's certainly a forefather. I mean, there is an epicness to the story that she tells as well as an intimacy, right? There's a movement to it. It is so rooted in place. It is rooted in the notion of movement um, and and of being, but also of moving around this area constantly. I mean, even freedom, right? Like the freedom that is found in movement, but also the freedom that is found in verse, right? Because there are what seem to be asides, But if you kind of let it go, she brings it back, right? And so one of the things that we frequently talk about with oral history is that oral history allows people to present themselves and their stories in a nonlinear way, which is how many people, most people live in a nonlinear fashion. I think what we try to do oftentimes in interpreting is to figure out what kind of structure we can impose on a narrative to help make it more accessible. Well, what's interesting is that she imposed her own narrative on this. It just happens to be a nonlinear one because it's a longer clip, but it takes you where it needs to go. And you needed to stop at all those stops to get to the last stop, if that makes sense. Like you needed to stop and be equipped with the things that she teaches you throughout the clip to make it to the end. And I think for me, one of the big themes that I was struck by, which we've been talking about throughout the episode, is this tension between public-private, and she's really reflective about this, the idea that she is pulling from two spaces that are both physical spaces and emotional spaces. Um, One is her home, 
That is the Quran. That is her linguistic origin there. And another is the street. And that verse is hip hop, right? And that these two things can come together, can coalesce for her and are really the crux of who she is as a poet. And I found that so meaningful and actually, you know, not to knock Whitman, but there's a like a self-reflectiveness and an honesty to it that I found maybe more refreshing than the bard himself. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. Because there's this, um, I think she's, I think, I don't know if the word she uses is intimidating, but she said this thing that's supposed to be perfect yeah. and how am I supposed to yes. arrival that, right? So there is a, a kind of humility there. And, well, and that's Whitman. Yeah. I have to say that is one of the great values of Whitman is his reveling in the messy and in the imperfect and in the dirty and yes. smelly yes. and, and yes. beautiful, right? That all the yeah. Those yes. things can be those yes. things and be beautiful. And I think, I don't know, you know, whether Suhair meant to like specifically reference that notion of perfection or imperfection. But when she said it, I immediately said, you know, this is Whitman, you know, looking at, you know, like, uh, <laughs> like horse poop on right. the streets and people yelling <laughs> right, at each other right, and crowding right. onto the ferry and or the spray in his truck face. backing up in the course of the oral history interview, That's right? Exactly. Yeah. And he's saying, this is it. This That's is right. not, I don't love despite this. I love because this. That's right. That's right. And I think, you know, we talked about this like map of Walt Whitman wandering. And I, I get this like Suhair is taking us on this journey, picking things up along the way. Right. And clearly tying it into this lineage through June Jordan. Like it yes. isn't just like Whitman. It's yes. like June Jordan walked and Whitman walked. Important. And now Suhair Hamad walks. Zahir and I may no longer be BHS employees, but we remain stalwart BHS fans. As always, don't forget to check out Brooklyn Historical Society's amazing public programs. We certainly will be. And we want to close out by highlighting some of the amazing tools that BHS has built to make its collections more accessible to the public. You know, great history cannot be done without great access to resources, and we are so proud that BHS has been at the forefront of making primary sources available to so many. I think we have to give a big shout out to our collections team, past and present, um, who has really spearheaded this process. And one of the things I was so proud to see was an upgrade that was done to one of our digital collections portals. For the first time in BHS's history, you can now begin to search artifacts in our collection on our Past Perfect online page, along with incredible photography that was done at an in-house studio that was just as DIY as the recording studio we find ourselves in right now. Just so everyone knows, before the last couple of years, The artifact collections were largely inaccessible to the public, and thanks to a massive processing project and digitization project, people could now begin to use these and do amazing research on them. And so everyone should go to our online collections pages and check that out. And likewise, I am very proud of the way that Brooklyn Historical Society delivers oral histories online through our online oral history portal that now makes available hundreds of oral histories from our collections. Most of them are transcribed and searchable and feature both text and audio that you can listen to. And we hope that this is just a little taste into all the things that you can do with the collections at Brooklyn Historical Society, whether you're coming in person or checking it out online. And so we're excited to see the wonderful scholarship from all of you that's going to come of this. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we have truly made Brooklyn history. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush dash Maine. 
There you'll find all 36 episodes with more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Special thanks to Tim D'Aquino, who edited some of the segments featured in this episode, and to Joe Schloss, who provided our show music. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. From Brooklyn Historical Society, one last time. We are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. 